It's great to have you here, and we're going to be digging into a subject which I hope will be helpful to you if you have an interest or in long-term missions and what's that like. Um, I served for 11 years in Kenya as a medical missionary before heading to Samaritan's Purse for a number of years, heading up uh, World Medical Missions and their medical relief work, and now, of course, at the Christian Medical and Dental Association's missions is very close to my heart, and uh, I'm going to share some of the things that I hope will be helpful uh, to you as we move forward. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, just pray that you'll open our minds, prepare our hearts, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. I know people here that are searching and exploring and trying to decide what God wants to do with their lives, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit may minister to us in your Son's name. Amen. I hear a lot of questions about missions, and having been in hundreds of mission conferences and mission meetings, uh, you get a lot of questions before, during, and after those from people who are trying to figure out where they need to be serving, what they need to be doing. And probably the most common question that I get is this first one, how do I know I'm called? Now, why is that so important? Because you probably won't make it on the mission field unless you know for certain God has called you there. You're going to face challenges, and uh, it's not going to be easy at times. And you always come back to that fact that God has called you there, prepared you for this. So when we talk about calls, we talk about the general call. And all of us have that, call to accept Christ and uh, a call to his lordship in our life where he has taken control of us completely. We've given him everything. That's not just something for missionaries, it's something for all of us. But it's probably something more important for missionaries because it's very difficult to be successful in a missionary role unless you've turned your heart completely to Christ and let him be king of your life. We've all called to be disciples and to disciple others. We're called to be witnesses and to share the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. The Bible is very clear about that. And because of that, we have the gospel. People did that. Uh, from Paul to many that followed, came and told someone who told someone who told someone who one day influenced your parents or influenced you, and you came to Christ. So we know that there's a, a general call that comes through Scripture. But there's also a specific call. And that's where it gets a little more tough. I mean, it's easy to open the Bible and say, yes, we're supposed to be involved in evangelism and discipleship and raising up the church. But where does God want me to serve? Is that in a practice here in the United States? Is that in my community where I was raised as a child? Or is that halfway around the world in some country I can hardly pronounce its name? And that specific call comes primarily through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to you. And it's God's specific will for you and your family. And the questions you're asking as you're seeking that is, what, what should I do? Where should I serve? It's more profound and life-changing than the general guidance of the Bible. And you'll see this as you read missionary biographies, as you meet missionaries at this meeting. Certain vocations need special empowerment to carry them out. And I think God often gives a call to those that he's prepared and is sending. So how do, you, how do you know that? How does that happen? For some people, it happens dramatically. All you have to do is look at the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. Probably many of you have prayed for a shining light from heaven to knock you off a horse. And, you know, considering what Paul went and did, he probably needed that kind of call, didn't he? Because uh, as you read about his life and what he went through, it was that call, that certainty that God had put him forth to do this that made such a difference. It can be a sermon. It can happen this week as you, as you uh, listen to a plenary speaker in a workshop. It may have happened already. It may have happened on a mission trip. It may be when you were having your quiet time in Scripture, you felt God nudging you. Uh, you, you felt his spirit. But for many people, it's, um, it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process, just a growing realization that God could use the skills and abilities he's given you, and you could be a medical missionary. My, my dad took me to the mission field in 1965. That just sounds how old it was. I was a freshman in high school. Most of my friends had never been on an airplane, much less outside the country. 
And my dad called me up in my I was in a Christian boarding school and said, son, I want to give you your graduation present, which I thought was a little premature. I just started high school. He said, I want to take you on a mission trip. And I went down to Haiti, and while I was there, I saw a nurse having to be a doctor. She was diagnosing, treating patients round up around the building, two or three rows in a line. And every once in a while, as I peeked in the door, I saw her get up and go into a side room. And finally, I got up my nerve and peeked in through the door that was cracked, and there she was down on her knees leading someone to Christ. I never met the nurse. He was too busy. She probably didn't even know I was out there. But God used that over a number of years, especially during my senior year of high school. So I began to pray and ask God, what do you want me to do with my life? He kept bringing that back to me. And I began to have this growing realization, this, this yeah, maybe so type of feeling that God wanted me to be a medical missionary. And uh, it can happen that way. And, and we got to understand that God often, when he calls you, doesn't lay it all out in front of you. He didn't do that with Abraham, did he? It says he called him into a country he didn't even know. Can you imagine selling your house, getting rid of most of your possessions, packing up your family and taking off, and all your neighbors say, where are you all moving to? And you say, don't know. God just told me to go into a land I don't know. God revealed that to him. And so we have to realize that that call is partially being on call, willing and ready, totally committed, realizing that God's plans are better than our plans, attuned to his Holy Spirit, seeking his will, and preparing ourselves for whatever he wants us to do. God will make you fit for what he's called you to do. The other thing you think is, well, I can't do that. I, I, I've met this missionary. I'm just not. I'm not like them. God is preparing you for what He called you to do, and He will mold you and make you into what He's designed you for. Some of that will happen after you already go. A lot of it will happen after you're already go. It's being sensitive to the need that's out there and uh, exposing yourself. I talk to students and residents, I'll say, listen, you know, so many will say, I feel like God's nudging me into missions. But the professionalization that takes place during our training begins to make you learn to be in charge, take control, run things. And all of a sudden you get to the point where you're thinking, I don't know, I don't know if I want some mission organization telling me when to come and go. I, I don't want to lose my financial independence. I don't want to, I don't want to, and before long you don't go. And so some of the cautions that I would give you is that. Secondly, don't overemphasize or use a call as an excuse. I've heard people saying, well, I I just haven't, you know, there hasn't been anything written on the wall. God doesn't work that way all the time. He may just nudge you. Uh, And some people use that as an excuse why they don't go. Uh, Move forward and search. It's kind of hard for God to steer a parked car. You ever tried to steer a parked car? It didn't go anywhere, does it? Because it's not moving. You've got to be moving and searching, and then God can guide you. He can steer you. He can move the direction. Go through the doors that are open before you. Take the next step, and God will confirm your call. The next step was me, was to go into pre-med when I went to college. And uh, it wasn't easy, and everybody else was uh, at the ball game, and I was in the library studying. And um, But, you know, as I took that next step and then went on a short-term mission trip to Kenya and God revealed that's where he wanted me to serve and just kept walking through the next door, wanted a preliminary appointment with our mission, next step, next step, next step. And God confirmed each step of the way. Act on the light that you have now. Act on the light. And I'm just talking to someone before we begin. And they say, God's nudging us into missions. And somebody said, this is the next step. We need to go to the Global Missions Health Conference. So they took the next step. That's what we all need to be doing. Where should I serve? Good question. I don't think God God sometimes calls you specifically to a place, uh, but usually his call is much more specific that you should go. And where you think you may want to serve may not end up where you serve. As you look at the needs around the world, which inform us, as, as David Bryant said, it's... God cannot lead you uh, in areas, I can't read it on my computer, cannot lead you on the basis of facts you do not know. The greatest needs and missions right now are in the 1040 window. That's what's pictured up there. world's population is 7 billion people. One-third of the earth's people call themselves Christians. Two-thirds do not. 
820 million of the world's population are Bible-reading Christians, not just Christians in name only, who would consider themselves evangelicals. There's 2.84 billion people unreached around the world uh, who haven't heard the the gospel. Over 160,000 believers will be martyred this year. U.S. missionaries make up only about 30% of the the missionary force around the world. And um, we're seeing more and more missionaries from other countries, from Korea, from Latin America, from Africa. I was talking to uh, the missions pastor in the national church I worked with in Kenya last week. And uh, they now have 32 missionaries in that church that are going not only in their own country to unreached people groups, but to other African countries. That's becoming more and more. The receiving countries now are becoming the sending countries. And those of us who go into medical missions, you're going to find you're going to be working with people from all over the world, probably in your ministry. Of those involved in missions in the United States, 98% are senders. They're supporters, they're, they're pastors, they're mobilizers, they're people praying. Um, one about uh, support and training people, those that do the administration, about a percent and a half. And so really only about half a percent are out there actually getting the work done on the field. Um, the good news is last year over 120 million people heard the gospel for the first time. Wow, isn't that exciting? Most of the world's unreached people and two-thirds of the population are right in this area. That's where the greatest needs are. And you know what's going to take the gospel there? Medical missions. Because most of these places aren't really very interested in having missionaries to come to their country. Some of them are very antagonistic, to say the least, to you being there. But often medical missionaries can get in and use innovative strategies, and even when they're known, will not be thrown out because of the services they're providing. And I think God is raising up a generation, a renaissance of medical missions to complete the Great Commission in that area. And as we see what's happening in this country and around uh, the world, these areas that are Islamic and Hindu and Buddhist, eight out of the ten poorest people groups in the world live in those areas, and only 8% of the world's missionary force is actually working there. So this is the target. Now, God may call you somewhere else. Area all being established. We have about 1,400 um, healthcare uh, folks that are planning to go on missions that have signed up with our Center for Medical Missions for some resources called Your Call. We did a survey of those 1,400 people. These are people who say, God has called me and I'm planning to go. 50% of them said they were heading to the 1040 window, 25% other places, and 25% didn't know. Uh, so uh, that's what we're looking at as we move forward for that great need. Well, let's look at some specifics. How, how do you go about this? You can look at the need. That's one of the things. You need to explore. I encourage you to read. Uh, there's a bookstore downstairs that we brought with us, other books in the church bookstore. Get good missionary biographies. Uh, get into the lives of other people. And we'll talk about some of my favorite books at the, the end. But take the time to dig in and learn more, and you'll be inspired by the stories you read. Talk to missionaries. This is a great time here. There's 150 exhibitors downstairs. There's tons of missionaries. Take the time, go around to some of the sending agencies. Start talking to them. What are your needs? Here's my skills. Where would this fit in? What are the opportunities that you see? Where are you guys making a difference? As you begin talking to missionaries, God will perhaps use that to guide you. Uh, attend mission conferences. That's why you're here this weekend. And, uh, and, and take the opportunity to meet people there. Uh, go to the new medicalmissions.com site. This is a new mission site that's just been put up. Uh, and it's a six-figure site that connects all the medical mission organizations in the country to one site where you can go to. You can... Listen to presentations from the Global Missions Health Conference. You can blog. You can ask questions. You can listen to audio. You can get to mission society sites. You can see where they have needs, what kind of people they're looking for. That's a great gateway to every medical mission organization in the U.S. Um, Contact agencies. You get an interest. You meet somebody. You hear a speaker or whatever. Take the next step. Contact. I'm exploring this. What should I do next? How can I get some exposure? Visit the field. 
with a short-term medical mission team, such as CMDA has Global Health Outreach. There's other groups that do medical teams. We do 50 a year all over the world. World Medical Missions is a great way to take your family. I used to head up World Medical Missions. It's the medical arm of Samaritan's Purse. You can go as a family for a month or longer and experience a spot. And oftentimes you can do that and God will just it'll seem like you put on a pair of comfortable shoes. This, this is where he wants you. I remember when I was at Tenwick, we had a young couple fresh out of the residency, both physicians, and they didn't know where they were supposed to serve. So they went with World Medical Missions, went to four hospitals over a year and spent three months at each. And they had, they had kind of sorted down to four of them they were considering. And at the end of that time, they knew this is where God wanted them to be. So in this day and time, it's easy to, to get experience. It's not like in the old days when people got on a ship, took off to a country they'd never been to before, um, the opportunities. And then look at your skills and needs um, and interest. What's God equipped you for? Uh, where can your skills best be used? What are the needs out there that you can help fill? Maybe you have a passion for training or or residency programs. Where is an opportunity to start a new one, perhaps? And some mission organization has that vision. God has prepared you specifically for something. He's not going to waste anything he's given to you. And uh, he's going to use it in some way. And so look at those skills and the needs out there and begin to match them up. Perhaps you know a missionary somewhere already. and, and, uh, And that might be a good place to start, to go spend some time with them. And then pray, 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 and pray. Because God will give you that guidance. He's not up there as the cosmic uh, joker, you know, just kind of thinking, well, I know they're looking, but I'll make them hang on for a while longer, you know. I just want to suffer a little bit more. He wants to lead you one step at a time and build your faith through this process and take you where he already knows you're going to serve. And it may not be where you decide. Dave Thompson, some of you heard Dave Thompson spoke in this conference. His parents were missionaries in uh, Cambodia. Uh, they were captured by the Viet Cong and both martyred. He spoke the local language. His wife's parents were martyred. They spoke the local language. They were going to go, and the killing field, fields broke out, and they ended up in Africa their whole career. And you look and see what God's done with them in Africa, and you can see he had that plan all the way along. They didn't see it, but he did. So what you expect and what you plan may not be where God actually ends up taking you and uh, rest in that. How do I pick a mission agency? Mission agencies, and there's lots of them out there. Um, And what do you consider? Well, consider their theology. Uh, Some organizations are interdenominational. Some organizations are denominational. If you're a Wesleyan Armenian, you're probably not going to serve with the International Mission Board of the Baptist Church, right? Or if you're a Baptist, you may not go. And so what is the theology, and is there a match there for where you're coming from? Or is it interdenominational and just evangelical and outreach? What's its focus? What part of the world does it work in? Is it looking at a country that you feel called to? Do they have work there that you can connect to? Or are they considering opening work there? Uh, So what is their focus? What is their strategy? Are they a church planning organization? And that's what they do. I I know a great missionary organization, and they believe their calling is training, and they open seminaries and Bible colleges. They don't have a lick of medical work that I know of. Great group, but what's their strategy, and how will you fit in? How evangelistic is it? Is it more humanitarian, or is it match your desire for evangelism and discipleship? Uh, what's its experience? What do I mean by that? Does this mission organization know what it's doing? There seems like there's a new mission organization every day being started. And, um, and some of them will be highly successful. Uh, but you want to have somebody that has experience and expertise. You want some group that's not old and stodgy, uh, but maybe experienced and continually relevant. Or it may be a new and exciting cutting-edge group that just lights your fire and you want to be part of it. Uh, but look at their experience and expertise because you want someone that's going to help you to be successful. Uh, what type of support does it have? Nominational groups, uh, go with the International Mission Board, Southern Baptists, they'll, you won't go out and raise support. They uh, provide all the support for you. There are a lot of faith mission organizations where you'll raise support, and we'll talk more about that later and the challenges of that. What's its success? 
Are people coming to Christ? Are people being discipled? Is leadership development taking place? Is there, is there indigenization? In other words, are, are, are they training up national leaders that are taking over and uh, expanding the work? That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to be there forever. It's to raise up a national church that's self-propagating. So is that happening? What's its management style? Is it top-down or decentralized? Organizations differ. The one I was with was very decentralized, and so everything pretty well flowed up from the fields. Yes, it got approved by the central office, but we had a lot of capability at our local level. Other groups aren't that way. It's the information coming down from the top. Here's what we're going to do. The missionaries on the ground may not have as much input. And uh, how do they deal with problems? How do they solve issues? How good are they at recruitment? I'd want to know that, especially in medical missions, because there's going to be more work than I can accomplish. There's going to be more work than you can accomplish. So you want a group that can help you come alongside. What's its culture? Every mission organization has a culture. And uh, the way they do things, the way they relate to each other, just like a family has a culture, a mission organization has a culture. And you want to try to get a feel for that. And how well do people get along? How kind of communication channels are open? And you can explore these things. This is a courting relationship. Let me assure you they're going to screen you. You also need to screen them and make sure you're a good fit. And experience it. We've already talked about that. And I'll go back to medicalmissions.com because, again, it's a great place to start that search process. How do you prepare? I get that question all the time. Dave, what specialty do they need if you're a physician? Let me let clue you in. You could go to residency for the rest of your life, and you won't be prepared for what you're going to do on the mission field. Sorry. I know that's hard to take because you don't want, you know, you're beaten into, you never do anything you're not competent to do. You've got to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to get to the mission field, and you're going to do things every day that you're not competent to do because there's nobody else to send them to. You're going to learn things. You're going to have a broader knowledge. You're going to have more experience in a wider variety of areas in most mission, medical mission situations. Uh, that's true for nurses. That's true for PAs. Um, where you're going to learn the most about missionary medicine is on the mission field. So if you've got a degree in nursing or as a PA, a nurse practitioner, a dentist, a physician, or whatever, the key thing is you know how to learn and you're willing to learn and then you can go because you're going to learn so much more after you get there than you've learned before you go. You've learned how to learn, and you're good at what you did. I've never seen a missionary physician who failed because they weren't competent enough. I've seen a lot of missionary doctors that did things they didn't know how to do and had to learn from someone after they got there. But at the same time, if you're willing to learn and realize that's part of it, um, and then if you know where you're going, talk to the people there and see what their needs are, what their visions are, what they see. Where a lot of happening in medical missions now is moving into training, training nationals and residency programs, nurses and nursing school programs have been going on for years. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that. Uh, more and more specialists are on the field. I know, I know of a neurosurgeon that served in Uganda. was doing half the neurosurgery in the country at one time. So... You know, the more specialized you are, the, le the fewer opportunities you will have. But there are plenty of places to serve for almost any specialty you can imagine. The hospital where I went, which is a Bush hospital, is now doing bypass surgery. Okay, because there's nobody in the country to take care of the, the kids with uh, rheumatic heart disease damage. And so, you know, if you're a perfusionist for cardiovascular surgery, they'd love to talk to you because they've got that program going. So... And then realize that you may, after you get there, come back and get extra training or to meet some specific need. Um, nurses uh, often need, depending on which country you're going to, especially the former British colonies where I was, their nursing training is so different than it is here that all our nurses had to get extra training when they got to the field. A lot of our nurses came back and, you know, became midwives, became nurse practitioners, became masters in public health, all sorts of things as they began teaching because their teaching is much broader. Go find out what you need, and, uh, and then you may, as many missionaries do, come back and get extra training when they're on home assignment. 
physician assistants, are, you're seeing more and more of those on the mission field. It differs depending on countries about licensure and how they're looked at, but there's a lot of opportunities open for them. You'll run into some crazy things. I'm sure there's doctors in here that have DO agrees, degrees. When I was in Kenya, DOs were not recognized because it was a British system. They don't know what to do with a DO. But I could go to the director of medical services, tell him I had a DO that was coming, and he'd say, fine, I'll license him. He had the power to license anybody he wanted to, whether they had any medical training or not. Uh, so he could license a dog going down the street if he wanted to. And he'd say, of course, no big deal. Yeah, I know they know what they're doing. So, I mean, there's ways around these issues, and it won't keep you out of country. Uh, groups that are very underrepresented, dentists and pharmacists, and uh, on the mission field as a whole, and uh, pray God will be moving a lot of their hearts. And everything else, from physical therapy to x-ray techs to hospital administrators to people in public health, it just goes on and on and on what can be used. Whatever skill God has given you a passion for and you've developed, there's probably a place where you can plug in. Um, you don't have to have it all before you go the first time. Uh, begin exploring and you'll realize what the opportunities are. What about raising support? This scares a lot of people. I'm not a public speaker, Dr. Stevens. I could never do that. And how do you raise your support? Let me just give you the bottom line. I've never, ever even heard of a healthcare personnel, a healthcare missionary who couldn't go to the field because they couldn't get their support. It's obvious to everybody you're going to do some good while you're there. And uh, they usually have a much easier time raising support than anyone else. What's, what's the benefit of raising support? We went with the faith mission, and, and, you know, there's benefits to both. It's easy just to, well, we're going and somebody else is picking up the bill. I don't have to do that. There's wonderful benefits. It gives you a tremendous opportunity for ministry in this country. I remember when we were in our first, now they call it home assignment, deputation back in those days, my dad, who was an evangelist, looked at me and he smiled and he said, David, you'll have as much impact in the United States as you're going to have in Kenya. And it's true. Uh, opportunity to go speak in churches, meet with friends, talk about missions, challenge. It's, it, I loved deputation. It was a wonderful time of ministry and seeing God work. We went to a church where I did my residency, which we felt was our mission field. It was pretty, very liberal. We used to go to Sunday school class. And uh, they'd sit around and share a buddy's opinion for 40 minutes, and I finally raised my hand and said, well, let's see what the Bible says. I mean, that was the kind of church it was. I was the first missionary in their pulpit in 30 years when we left. Great opportunity for ministry and challenge. So God will use that. Um, and it's not hard to do. There's great training. Mission organizations will help you do it. Um, and you'll raise up a group of champions, not just people that support you financially, but champions who will pray for you, champions will come and help you in your work, and they will promote your work to other people, and you're moving people, helping move them down their spiritual path because they have a relationship with you, and they're walking that faith walk with you. So never look at, at raising support as, well, I just got to go beg people for money. That's... I learned a lot of time ago, you go minister to people and the finances will take care of themselves. You cast a vision and talk about how God's wanting to use you and the support will come. I still remember some of our supporters. We left the field, came back to the U.S. in 1991. I remember two 14-year-old girls in West Virginia who wrote a note to me and said, we want to support you every month and we're going to babysit so we can do that. Still remember those girls. I still have people that I'm in contact with over 20 years after we left the mission field being full-time missionaries who still pray for us and support us through CMDA. So it's a wonderful relationship building. I don't see it as a burden. What are the barriers? It takes time. There's some fear. How can I do this? I don't know how to do it. I, there's, mission organizations have a lot of experience and will help you accomplish that if you go with a faith-based group. So don't let that be a barrier to you. And this support team will bless you in so many ways. I got a check in the mail this week. It was in a little hand-knit Christmas ornament for $100 from Florence Travora. You know when she started supporting us? When I was a college student. 
She wrote the college and said, I want to help somebody that's going into missions, particularly medicine. Florence Travor is now 92 years old and prays for me every day. And every Christmas, she sends me $100. I've told her 100 times, I don't need it. She sends it anyway with a little personal note. These relationships are are very rich. And uh, I went and spoke at her little inner city church in Detroit where she goes. We used to go with her sister, an all-African-American church, and they were the only two white faces in the group. She was a wonderful lady. So, yeah, yeah, support raising will support you. Not financially nearly as much it will support you in, in what you're doing. What about your children? This is the other big issue. This is a big issue for Jody and I. We had Jason, I, my first year of residency, and Jessica, my last year of residency. I tell them we did that because they were free. Actually, we didn't have to pay for deliveries back in those days. They did it at the hospital. So we got two in. And um, Jason was about two and a half, and Jessica was one when we left to go overseas. At that time in Kenya, it's not that way anymore, but at that time in Kenya, kids went off to boarding school at age six or seven, second grade. We couldn't imagine that for our little Jason and Jessica. Oh, we used to have lots of discussions about it and plans and how we were going to work it around. Homeschooling was just started. Maybe we could do homeschooling. That was back in 80, 79, 80. We wrestled and wrestled over that whole issue. And finally, one day, kind of God spoke to me in a very almost voice in my head and said, David, do you think I can take care of everything but your children? See, I had the same problem Abraham had. Abraham made Isaac more important to him than anything else, and God one day said, put him on the altar. That's the day God did that to me. That didn't mean I cared any less for my kids, but I had thought somehow that God could take care of everything, but I had to take care of the children. All on me. There's tremendous advantages to raising your kids on the mission field. You know what the hardest thing was when God called us back and I wrestled with him for a year about it? That I no longer could have our kids on the mission field. I remember people used to come to us and say, well, how can you take your kids over to that jungle? And finally one day I turned to someone and said, well, you know, your kids are really in the jungle. Mine are in a lot safer place than yours are. Nobody's going to hand them drugs down at the mall. I have to worry about what they're going to see at the movie theater. I eat breakfast, lunch, and supper with my kids every day. How many doctors do that? Hmm? If I was, I was very busy, but when I got tied up to the hospital, Jason would come up to the hospital, stick his head in the OR, and say, Mom wants to know when you're coming for supper. Hey, can I watch? What are you doing? <laughs> Put on your mask, stand on the stool over there. Okay, Dad. Your kids are involved in your life. There's a lot of advantages, a lack of negative influences, the consumerism. Kids have, you know, they say the best way to bond a family is to go on a camping trip. You know why? Because you face a common challenge together. Missionary life is one long camping trip. Let me clue you in. <laughs> Everything, especially in remote areas, is a challenge. And even in urban areas it is. And so you're very close with your family. Uh, kids mature much more. We really noticed it when we came back. Our kids were 13, 11, and 7 when we came back to the U.S. We'd go overnight and leave our 13-year-old in charge of the kids. My friends have thought, are you nuts? Two oldest ones have been off boarding school. They're very mature. They weren't going to do things that very self-reliant. Uh, we saw that when you know we were. Jason turned 16. He was driving his sisters uh, an hour through Dallas traffic to school every day. Kids have seen pain and suffering. They've dealt with adults. They've been involved in decision-making. They've had levels of responsibility. They're used to dealing with a wide variety of people. Missionary kids tend to be very uh, confident, and they tend, and I'm speaking in generalities, and they they, um, uh, tend to be high achievers. Actually, did a study on that and found missionary kids were the highest achievers Second highest were kids of diplomatic corps. Um, so, yeah, some kids have problems on the mission field too, and I could tell you some stories, but on average, it's a great place to raise kids. And then there's a lot of good resources about raising your missionary kids, what they call third 
world kids that um, you know that have, don't know which culture they belong to and all sorts of things. What are the challenges? There are there are challenges. I didn't mention that. Some of the rich experiences. Uh, your kids have traveled all over the world. They're comfortable with anybody. I remember we were in the airport in Madrid, Spain, coming back from Africa, and Jason was about four. And uh, we had a long layover, and he, some people sat down beside us. The next thing I knew, he'd gone down, you know, about as far from the door. He was jabbering at him and talking. And a few minutes he came back. He said, Dad, you're going to have to go talk Swahili to them. They don't understand any Kipsigese or English. <laughs> He's only knew of three languages, and he didn't know that one. So he figured that, you know, these people from Spain didn't understand Kipsigese or English. So, you know, they're just very outgoing. They've had rich experiences and uh, unique schooling and education and huge breadth of perspective. They have a large worldview. So it's, uh, it's you know, we, we saw it. And I'm not guaranteeing there's not going to be any problems. But I'm saying what turned out to us to be an enormous blessing. What are the challenges? Frequent transitions. Missionary kids are saying goodbye and hello all the time. Uh, going off to school, adjusting to new challenges. They're very, very adaptable because of that. But it is a challenge. Their sense of identity. Am I American? Am I Kenyan? Where's home? How's all that? And that's some of the, the, the factors they uh, uh, they face. Now, that's gotten better because, you know, you FaceTime or Skype with your parents every night of the week now in most places around the world and see their grandparents and stuff. Uh, which is a lot better back in the old days, but it's still uh, some of that. Uh, commitment, it's hard for them to commit uh, because they've been through so many different changes. They've noticed this in committing to be part of a church. They tend to be, uh, they like the transitions, they like the change, they're used to it, and so long-term commitment can be a problem for missionary kids. The rootlessness, we've talked about where's home, and sometimes hard to settle down and stay in the same place or the same job. Um, separation for family and friends, it's, that's the hardest part of missionary life is being away from your family, your grandparents and all the rest of it. It's a lot better than it used to be. The world's a lot smaller. People come home a lot more often. Uh, parents come overseas and it's easy to travel, grandparents and stuff. So, you know, these things can, are not ultimate no's. I'm just saying these are some of the challenges. And there's lots of resources out there now, uh, whole groups that talk about third culture kids and their experience and help you deal with them. And things like when you're back on furlough, stay in the same house, stay close to family, all kinds of good advice that they give you that helps with the transitions. But it's very much more positive than negative. And I thank God that our kids got to be raised overseas, and I pray to God my grandchildren get to raise, get me raised overseas. And uh, I feel that strongly about it. I'll do what my dad did. My dad and mom used to show up uh, at least once a year. First thing dad said when he walked into the house, he said, Well, I'm here. We're going to expend some of your inheritance. I figure I'm going to enjoy it with you instead of you enjoying it after I'm gone. And uh, that's how he lived. And that's what I told my kids. We'll get there one way or another, uh, probably at least once a year. What about safety? God's in control. That's the bottom line. You're not safe here. You just don't know it. <laughs> uh, you may not see it as you would in some other places around the world. I was, I'm on the board of Asbury University. I had a student on the soccer field a few weeks ago just dropped dead. Perfectly healthy as far as they knew. Senior dropped dead. You, God has a plan for everyone or our lives. Bad things happen to good people. But remember, the greatest risk often bring the greatest rewards for God's kingdom. And this whole issue of... of uh, uh, risk is what God asked of us to spread the gospel. Just look at the life of Paul. It wasn't without problems. There was no doubt he was close to the Lord, but God used what he went through to bring people to Christ. And uh, God may put you through some trials, but the bottom line is it's much better be in the center of his will than out of his will. And uh, he's told us that. How can you avoid burnout? That's the other big issue. Because the problem on the mission field is that's the devil's favorite tool. Because there's unlimited needs, especially in medicine, and limited resources. And I'm talking about people. And it can make it very tough. And so uh, doing some things to help avoid that, you can use those here in this country as well. First of all is to realize it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. 
you do the best you can for the most you can, but you're not going to save everyone. And that is a whole different philosophy of healthcare than what you've been taught. You do everything you can for every person, and that's what you owe them. But what if there's so many people that that's just physically impossible? You cannot work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to realize you do the best you can. You know what helped me to realize? Christ handled this too. Could you imagine what it would be like if people could just touch you and be healed? Can you imagine the demand? You think you had a crowd at the clinic. Oh, my goodness. And yet, and also, he could have just snapped his fingers and healed everybody in Israel, and he didn't do it. Because he understood it was about relationships. His healings were a means to an end, to introduce people to Christ. And you have to realize that you have to pace yourself. You have to take care of yourself. You do the most you can for the most people, but you cannot in many situations save them all because it's an endless thing. And you have to learn to pace yourself. You have to do self-care. That's not selfishness, but you have to realize that you have the responsibility to take care for yourself. You need to find some accountability. Another trusted colleague, just like you do here to to frankly tell you how you're doing and tell you when you need to slow down. I have somebody like that in my life now because I still have that tendency to try to conquer the whole world today. And uh, having someone who can countable, uh, it's, a, it's a real issue that you need help with in these situations. Learning to delegate, realizing you can't do it all, so who do I, can I teach to do some of this? Someone who I can bring up and and help accomplish the job and realizing that's part of it. And then keep at it. Why do you say that if not too many? A couple years ago, I wrote an article for our magazine. It says, I can't believe I've done it again. That was the title. Because I was getting crispy, just like every half the other doctors in the country, and pushing too hard. And sometimes you just have to reassess and restart. And, uh, you know, for overachievers, and all of us in healthcare are, Our greatest strength is our greatest weakness when it's taken to the extreme. Did you hear what I said? Our greatest strength is our greatest weakness when it's taken to the extreme. Your ability to focus, to study hard, to keep your mind on it, to get the job done is a wonderful strength until you take it too far, and then it becomes your greatest weakness. And you've got to realize that. Your greatest strength is your greatest weakness when it's taken too far. Can you have spiritual ministry? Must prepare for it. If you're not witnessing and discipling now, it's unlikely you're witnessing and disciple there. So how are you preparing? What courses are you in? You study medicine all the time to get better at it. How do you get better at teaching the Bible? How do you get better at discipling? How do you learn how to share your faith? How do you get out there and make a difference? You've got to prepare, and now's the time to start that. You must prioritize it. Um, In the mission field, you've got to realize there's always going to be more medical work, and the devil will just get you focused on that and forget the other. And I I don't have time, but I can tell you stories how that happened in my life. Just thinking, I just got to get more people through. These people are waiting. I've got to, you know, and forgetting the spiritual ministry early in my career on the mission field. And uh, realize that for your own spiritual health, you need to be involved in ministry. You will not last on the mission field unless you're involved in spiritual ministry. Because guess what? Every patient you treat is going to die anyway. Maybe not today, maybe not this week. You've saved them from their pneumonia, but they're all going to die. And until you introduce people to Christ and see them growing in their faith, that's where the real satisfaction of what you're doing is. So you must prioritize it. You need to realize you can't do it all. You know, we had 180% occupancy in my hospital. We arrived in 135 beds, and there was three docs. I had 300,000 people in our catchment area, so I had 100,000 patients. The next doc had 100,000, you know. It was a challenge, but you realized we needed a good chaplaincy program. We needed to make sure every patient heard the gospel. We needed chapels. We need organization. I couldn't go around and witness to everyone in a day with everything else I had to do, but we had to train and bring others up to do it, so you can't do it all. And um, and what you do is complimentary. You facilitate. You participate. Uh, we had spiritual consults on the chart. The chaplain needs to see this patient. Maybe I'd start with a witness or share something, identify a need, get the chaplain there. 
and realize you have a complementary role uh, with the system that you've set up. Some organizations even ordain their doctors, uh, some mission organizations, even though you have been to seminary, missionary doctors are ordained because of what they're doing. What's going to be your biggest challenges? We've got just a few minutes more here. Growing spiritually can be a challenge on the mission field because that wonderful church you've been going to isn't going to be there. In fact, you may be worshiping another language with a national pastor that doesn't have that much training, and so you've got to work to around that. We used to get tapes from home. We used to have a Bible study group in our home. We had all sorts of things to make sure in our personal devotions that we were continuing to grow spiritually. You can't keep giving out and think you're not going to get empty. And uh, you've got to grow. Adaptability is the most important characteristic for a missionary. There's continual challenges, continual change. No day's ever the same. Medically, it's not. After 11 years in Kenya, I never had a week go by that I didn't see something I'd never seen before. I remember I diagnosed my first case of leprosy. There wasn't supposed to be any leprosy in Kenya. And uh, three weeks before we came home, a girl came in with this white spot on the toe that had no feeling, and I biopsied it, and she looked like leprosy, and sure enough, she had it. There's always going to be adaptability uh, to lots of things, not just medicine. Other missionaries. You don't get to pick your friends on the mission field. Did you know that? The mission picks them for you. And uh, that's a wonderful blessing. I remember my brother-in-law, who had been a missionary in Columbia, he turned to me and said, David, the most wonderful blessing you're going to have when you go overseas is the other missionaries. And the biggest problems you're going to have overseas are the other missionaries. And it's true, because you're very interdependent. You're working together, worshiping together, playing together. You live next door to each other. And uh, so, you know, good mission groups help you learn how to, to deal with conflict and controversy and how to function well as a group. And that's a large part of it. And you can be the oil in the wheels. You can be the sand in the gears. And, of course, you want to be the oil in the wheels. Separation for family, birthdays, holidays, deaths, weddings, those are challenging uh, when you want to be there and you can't. And then medicine is only part of the equation. By that, I mean you do medicine, but you learn very quickly on the mission field that your success as a medical missionary has a lot more to do with your ability to organize, manage people, plan, raise funds, build buildings, start programs, all those other things, because there's so many needs and there's so few people there, and you realize you have to empower others to solve them. Maybe starting a huge community health program. Uh, it may be building a hydroelectric plant, one of my jobs. I didn't know anything about building hydroelectric plants, but we didn't have electricity. Right around a hospital without 24-hour electricity. And so there will be a lot of other things. In fact, I, to help you, I know that scares you, to help you, I just wrote, finished a book. It's downstairs, and it's called Beyond Medicine. What else you need to know? To be a healthcare ministry, they didn't teach you, or whatever the title is. It's on there. <laughs> tell you how new it is. It came out last week. But I've been doing a series of articles for medical missionaries on the field, helping them with all these issues that many of them struggle with. And uh, some other good books uh, Handbook of Medicine in Developing Countries, a book that CMDA's put out for about 15 years now. And it's written by two of our members. And it's how you take care of people overseas, all those diseases you don't know, all those medicines you're not used to. It's, I think it's the third or fourth edition, and it's a great resource. Uh, on Being a Missionary is a wonderful resource by Tom Hale, a missionary to Nepal, and, and covers a lot of things in more depth than we've talked about today. Inspirational books, uh, Jesus MD, one that I wrote, On Call by Dave Thompson. And uh, a wonderful book called The Miracle at Tenwick, the story of Dr. Ernie Sturry, the founder of that hospital. So there are a lot of other resources you'll find down in the area. But just keep feeding yourself on this. Questions you have? We got, I'm sorry, we've only got three or four minutes left here, but you know everything you need to know. I'll just take one or two more questions and it'll be complete for you, I know. Okay. Um, we're probably not the only ones where the spouse is not a medical professional. Yeah. Um, what, what have been some experiences or fellow missionaries who... Um, you want the spouse to come along, you want them to share the call, but what, what is their role? What can their role be? Depends, it depends a lot on where you serve. I just give our own personal example. My wife's school teacher taught secondary ed. I wasn't available. Uh, did where we, When we went, she did a lot of entertaining in her home. We didn't have a guest house. We didn't have any hotels. We had visiting staff. 
and she had the wonderful gifts of hospitality. She ran her guest house. She was an artist. She created posters for the hospital. She created logos for our community health work. She did she did a lot of women's ministry out in the community, and she'd head out and run Bible studies. She helped host a Bible study in her home, just all sorts of things, whatever needed to be done, and felt very fulfilled. She started a one-room schoolhouse. We homeschooled for a while. Other families wanted that and, and didn't feel like they had the skills to do it. Jody had eight kids in five grades all in the same room. Still says it's the most fun thing she's ever done. Scared her to death because she wasn't a primary school teacher, but she loved it. So a willingness to help, and they'll have more than enough to do. There's always things to be done. Uh, one of the missionary's wives, Dr. Sturry's wife, was the treasurer at the hospital and managed all the finances. That wasn't my wife's skill, but it was terribly needed, and, and she was the checks and balances up there. So whatever skills God has given you, don't begin to think that God's not going to utilize the person he's brought into your life to be your spouse if he's called you to the medical mission field. And it's a good question to ask your mission organization. Adaptability, you'll find more than enough to do. Another question. Yes. I'm a family medicine resident. Yeah. I always wondered if I should have gone into surgery. Do you think it's harder for a family medicine trained person to become a surgeon or vice versa? Uh, it depends totally on where you're going to serve. And I had the big battle. I, I love surgery, um, but I knew I was going to Tenwick and there was a surgeon there. I knew I was going to have to do everything. I was going to have to do OB, I was going to have to do P's, I was going to have to do medicine. I was going to Bush Hospital and there was three of us. So I went the family planning route, went to a program that we learned how to do C-sections in, what back then they called level 2 OB, learned to handle instruments, get in and out of the belly, and then I did my surgery residency when I got to Tenway. Dr. Sturry had said, come in here, I'm going to show you how to do this. We'd do some, and, you know, half a dozen. He said, okay, call me if you need me. I'll be down the hill. And then things that happened in the middle of the night, and, you know. Now, if you go, now, if I was going to a hospital, there was nobody else there. I was starting a new hospital, fresh out of my residency, or nobody at this place. I'd probably go into surgery. But um, the broad practice in a Bush situation, a family practice gives you. And secondly, that's where a lot of the emphasis now is in missions, is raising up family practice residencies in mission hospitals because this is the ideal person they need to be national missionaries to their own people and surgical training, Pan-African College Christian Surgeon. One more. Yeah, a couple of ideas you talked about was self-care mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's depending on whether they want me to stay or not. There, there's always, in fact, I'm giving a lecture. It's, it's advertised wrong. It's going to be in the chapel tomorrow. Um, but it's going to be playing God and other ethical issues in missionary medicine. And one of the big challenges in missionary medicine is two goods and two, and the, the competition between goods and evils. Not good and evil, but the goods and then competition between the evils. And the goods is that, you know, well, I guess it's on the evil side. The evil side is you leave the hospital going on vacation and people will probably die because you're not there. And so you don't want that to happen. But if you don't take some vacation and time away, you're not going to survive and you'll be back in the States and a lot more will die. And so you have these competitions. You know, the black and white things are, are not the big challenge. It's the, it's the things where you have those going on. Do we pay a bribe down at the port to get the medicines and supplies in? If we don't, People are going to die because we don't have them, but we don't want to pay a bribe because we shouldn't do that. Those are the tensions that you have in missionary medicine that you're dealing with continually in ethical arenas. Come to that lecture if you want to hear more about that. I'll be here if you've got other questions. God bless you. And we pray and God leads you to where he wants you to serve.